Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 25 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to have longtime Lowell Observatory astronomer Phil Massey as my featured guest. Massey's main research interest is the observational study of massive stars, and to that end, he travels to some of the world's largest telescopes. Last year, he even got to observe on board the Boeing 747 that houses NASA's current airborne infrared SOFIA telescope. Massey was awarded his Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Colorado in Boulder, and for 17 years, he was a staff astronomer at Kitt Peak National Observatory in Tucson, Arizona. He moved to Flagstaff in 2000, where he now observes with the 4.3-meter Lowell Discovery Telescope. But today, our topic is the Andromeda Galaxy, our nearest grand spiral neighbor, and the only full-scale galaxy that you can see with the naked eye from your own dark backyard. Massey has long had a research interest in Andromeda and frequently uses the mighty MMT telescope in southern Arizona to study its stars. Massey joins us from Flagstaff in Arizona. Phil, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thanks very much, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me. First off, is it really true that uh, you can see the Andromeda galaxy with, with the naked eye? Puzzle? Absolutely. Okay. Um, in, uh, Flagstaff is a, is a dark sky city. And so I can see the Andromeda Galaxy easily from my backyard. I was a graduate student in Boulder, Colorado, and it is also quite dark there. And I remember riding my bike home one, one evening after lab and looking up and just really being impressed by how easy it was to see. You know, as you know, uh, the Magellanic Clouds, which are technically dwarf galaxies over on Milky Way, can easily be seen from the Southern Hemisphere. Are there any other dwarf galaxies that, that could be seen from the northern hemisphere? No, not by, not by eye. Um, okay. I'm privileged to get to go down to Chile a couple times a year, although obviously not this year. And man, seeing the Magellanic Clouds is a, is a whole other experience. So let's, let's cover a little background about on Andromeda. It lies uh, 2.5 million light years away in the northern constellation of Andromeda, and truly qualifies as iconic. Its familiar shape has adorned the walls of many a high school science class. And as I wrote in a, 20, a 2007 article in Cosmos magazine, with a visible disk spanning some 260,000 light years, we now know that Andromeda is redder, more luminous, and more massive than the Milky Way. It's also estimated to have as many as a trillion stars compared to 200 billion or 400 billion for our own galaxy. Is, is this still the estimated number of, of stars in Andromeda? Well, that's an interesting question, Bruce. Um, for many years, we did think the Andromeda galaxy was a bigger and more massive member of the local group compared to the Milky Way. But um, a recent study done in 2018 disputes that. Um, researchers at the University of Western Australia were able to measure the mass of the Andromeda galaxy in a new way, which involved looking at high-velocity stars. And from this, they concluded Andromeda actually probably has about the same size in terms of mass as their own Milky Way. As for the physical size, it's really hard to know what to count. For instance, you know, 
the, the boundaries of a big city like Los Angeles are drawn on a map. But if you were driving anywhere near there, you, you'd really be hard-pressed to distinguish Los Angeles itself from, say, Pasadena. And I think that's a little bit how it is moving around in the local group. Um, as you know, the halo of Andromeda overlaps a little bit with the halo of the Milky Way. And so who's to say exactly where the boundaries are? The local group, if you could just tell us, uh, the listener, what, how you define the local group. So um, galaxies are gregarious. They like to hang out together. And we're in a small group of galaxies that is um, known as the local group because, after all, we're in it. The three big players are the Milky Way, um, the Andromeda Galaxy, and the Triangulum Galaxy, M33. Um, the large and small Magellanic clouds are satellites of the Milky Way. Uh, the Andromeda Galaxy has a couple of nice satellite galaxies. All in all, there are about 80 known members now of the local group. Um, it's hard to actually get a good number because we're living in the Milky Way, and there's a large area, it's called the, uh, the, the uh, region of obscuration, that the Milky Way just hides what um, we can't see outside the plane of our Milky in, what from the Mil, from the plane of the Milky Way we can't see along the plane of the Milky Way very far and so there could be many more members that we just haven't identified but the number is on the order of 80 or 100 so as your uh, late colleague University of Washington astronomer Paul Hodge writes in his 1992 book the Andromeda Galaxy one of the first recorded references to Andromeda is, is just as a faint smudge of light found in Al-Sufi's book on the constellation of the fixed stars, which dates uh, from the end of the first millennium. So in other words, around 980 AD. And French astronomer Charles Messier in 1784 cataloged Andromeda in his catalog of 100 nebulous objects, listing it as Number 31, though, thus uh, in, uh, Andromeda today is known in, in shorthand as M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, that is. Hodge writes that Messier wasn't so much interested in these objects themselves, but he was cataloging them so he wouldn't mistake them for comets, as that was, was his main preoccupation. Um, the, the way you've described this is the same way that I've described it to students over many decades, that Charles Messier didn't really care about these objects. He was, he, his concern was looking for comets, and to him, these were just annoying little objects that, that you could mistake for comets because they were fuzzy, but they didn't move from night to night away the way a comet did. And so he made this list and circulated it to other people interested in looking for comets so that they wouldn't mistake you know, something as interesting as a comet for, for, you know, with one of these objects. And then Hodge writes that for a thousand years, basically, the Andromeda, Gala uh, the Andromeda Nebula, which, as, at, which it was known as then, it wasn't determined to be a, a galaxy uh, as we know it today, remained a largely unexplored and poorly understood curiosity. But by the late 19th century, a new star known as S-And was seen as its, at its center. What was or is S-And? Well, at the time of its discovery in 1885, S-Andromeda was thought to, thought to be a nova, 
That's because we didn't realize what an incredible distance the Andromeda galaxy was at. We didn't know about galaxies, as you just said. In fact, we simply referred to things as like the Andromeda galaxy as a nebula, a fuzzy patch, a term used for any diffuse thing like a gas cloud. Instead, we realized today that S. Andromeda wasn't an a nova, it was a supernova, and it was the first one observed outside of our own galaxy. The supernova got bright enough so that you could actually just barely make it out by the naked eye. Um, it, it's now, it's a sort of, it's what we would classify today as a supernova type 1A, which is uh, the case when you have a companion star dumping material on a white dwarf that's near the limit um, the Shantae-Sekar limit, and basically the, the star explodes and becomes very, very bright, and what outshining is, its galaxy for, for a few weeks. And what is the difference uh, between just a regular nova and a supernova? Well, so they, the kind of stars that I study, massive stars, um, they, at the end of their lives, they turn into what we call core collapse supernovae in which um, you're making you're fusing hydrogen into helium helium into carbon all of these reactions give off energy until you get to iron and when you try to do something with iron then the reaction becomes endothermic and the star basically implodes and so this is incredibly bright a nova on the by contrast occurs when you have a binary star system and material from one star dumps onto the other star and it, and it gets brighter for a while. And they're, they're much less luminous than true supernovae. And so, in other words, uh, the supernova that was uh, found in the 19th century, the known as S-AND, uh, we're just observing its remnants today. Uh, I assume we're doing follow-up observations on its remnants. Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't actually know the answer to that. But the nearest nearby uh, supernova was in the Magellanic Clouds, uh, the 1987A, which was Correct. found uh, actually from Chile at the Blanco 4 meter, if I'm not incorrect. Um, well, actually, um, you, you're close. Um, it was actually found by a telescope operator uh, who stepped outside for a smoke at Las Campanas Observatory. Ah, okay. Um, and he uh, he he called attention. He called. He noted this to a couple of other astronomers um, on the mountain, and one of them took um, a photograph with it of it with the Dupont hundred inch on Las Campanas, and that was the the that's when they made the announcement. But it was actually found by this uh, very very nice telescope operator who's still there as a telescope operator. I've had many chats with him during dinner. After SN, did and has Andromeda had any other supernova that had been detected? No, and in fact, um, there has that between other than 1987A and the Magellanic clouds and S Andromeda um, in the Andromeda galaxy, there have been no naked eye supernova ones that are bright enough for you to see without a telescope. So, aside from being just our nearest spiral neighbor. M31 has has played a great historical role in the understanding of our cosmos as a whole, Uh, has it not? I mean, you mentioned to me prior to taping that the first measurements by V.M. Slipher at Lowell Observatory showed that the galaxy is moving toward us at a rate of 
several hundred kilometers a second. So that, along with the discovery of the first Cepheid variable star in Andromeda in 1923 by Edwin Hubble, played a major role in establishing that M31 was a galaxy in its own right. So please tell us how the Cepheid variables, what they are and how they enabled astronomers to obtain distance measurements to distant galaxies and, and uh, how they were used uh, to characterize Andromeda. Well, Cepheid stars are very luminous variable stars, and they vary in a very systematic way. And how luminous they get is a very clearly tied to their period. So if you just measure the period of how long it takes this variable star to get bright and faint and then bright again, you know automatically from calibration within our own galaxy how intrinsically bright it is. It's like if you're looking at light bulbs, you know, you can't necessarily tell if a light bulb is 100 watts or 20 watts unless you also know how far away it is. And so the one of the, the big tricks in all of extragalactic work and cosmology is to determine distances to things. And Cepheids are probably the most important step on what we call the distance ladder. And so simply by measuring the period, how long it takes for one of these stars to get brighter and fainter, you know intrinsically how bright it is, and that allows you to calculate how far away the object is, the galaxy is, because you know how bright it appears to be. So in um, 1923, as you said, Edwin Hubble took a plate with a 100-inch Hooker telescope on Mount Wilson outside of Pasadena. And Hubble found this brightish star that hadn't been there a few nights earlier. He, he thought at first it was a nova, actually, and he had marked an N on the plate for a new star or for a nova. But subsequent plates showed it was just a variable star. And he crossed out the N and he wrote ver. And um, David Sonderbrom, an astronomer at Space Telescope, has described this as probably the single most important object ever discovered in cosmology. Because wow. the distance implied by this Cepheid was huge, way outside of the Milky Way. And I'll, and I'll just note that when, when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, they were talking about what things of Hubble's should they take up in the space shuttle Discovery that launched the Hubble. And what they took was a, a photographic copy of this plate. Slifer does get some credit, does he not? Oh, yes. Um, so that that's... That's actually one of the, the great slights, I think, in astronomy is that Hubble was often credited with having measured redshifts for all these galaxies. But in fact, it, most of the work that was done in measuring the redshifts was by VM Slifer at Lowell and um, by one other or two other astronomers. It was Hubble who, who put this information together and came to the conclusion that the universe was expanding, which was you know, a really big thing. But he relied heavily on Slipher's measurements. Okay, so then in 1944, during World War II, German astronomer Walter Bada, working again at Mount Wilson outside Pasadena, explored the structure of Andromeda using red filters and with the help of periodic wartime blackouts of the Los Angeles area, uh, aided his telescopic, telescopic uh, seeing. He was the initiator of the modern idea of stellar populations, which had its origins in M31, not, not the Milky Way galaxy, and he obtained the first evidence in 44 
that uh, there were two distinct stellar populations leading to the concepts of population one stars and population two stars. And then, as you know, uh, Phil, population three stars are the theoretical stars that were the first stars in the universe. So can you tell us a bit about how Bada came to this conclusion and uh, give us kind of definitions of what a population one star is and what a population two star is in a, in a spiral galaxy? Sure. So, um, so uh, as you said, so this work was taking place during World War II, and Bada had been born in Germany, and he was considered an enemy alien. And so unlike a lot of other astronomers, he was barred from wartime technical development. So he managed to get a lot of observing time as Hubble was off somewhere else. Um, he would, Hubble otherwise would have probably dominated the, the telescope schedule for the 100 inch. So using plates on the Mount Wilson 100 inch, both in yellow and red uh, light, he was able to show that the bulge of M31 and the nearby elliptical dwarf galaxies M32 and NGC 205, two of the companions of the Andromeda galaxy, were all composed primarily of red stars, while the spiral arms of M31 were composed of blue stars. Um, and he he, real, he he had theorized this for a while, that we knew that there were elliptical galaxies and spiral galaxies. And the elliptical galaxies turn out to be red and dominated by what became known as population two stars, while the spiral galaxies have both population one and population two stars. When he, after he published his work, the famous physicist George Gamow actually sent Bada a postcard saying that probably the explanation was that the red stars were an older population, while the bright blue stars, the population one stars, were younger. And that's indeed correct. Gamow was one of these people who was working out the whole theory of nuclear fusion, what powers the stars. And he realized that the blue stars had to be more massive and hotter, and they were um, they couldn't have lasted very long while the while the red stars were could be actually billions of years old, while the blue stars were probably only millions of years old. Hodge writes uh, that Andromeda has so some 300 globular clusters. So, so tell us what a globular cluster is. In the same way that galaxies are gregarious and like, like to hang out in groups, um, stars like to hang out in groups too, primarily. That um, when the sun was born, it was probably born in a cluster. And these clusters basically come in two flavors. One of them are the globular clusters, and the other are the open clusters. Uh, the globular clusters are what formed first. As the Milky Way was forming, you had this giant cloud of gas that was slowly coming together under its own gravity. And there would be little pockets that were denser than other little pockets, and these would self-gravitate to form giant balls of stars. And these are the globular clusters, and they formed, they were the first stars to form in our Milky Way. And their ages are all around 12 billion years. And so these are among now the most spectacular things you can see in a small telescope, looking at something like M13, another of Messier's objects, or M3, these beautiful balls of stars densely packed together. And same thing happened in the Andromeda galaxy. Um, it's got hundreds of known globular clusters. Now, 
as seen from here, they're 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 barely resolved. You really have to use space telescope to be able to to distinguish them as individual stars, these globular clusters in Andromeda. From the ground, they just look like uh, sort of fuzzy patches. And so Hodge writes that Andromeda um, actually also has some 200 OB associations, uh, O star and B star, the blue stars that you were talking about, the star clouds representing areas of very recent massive uh, star formation. Um, what do we know about, since uh, uh, the, the book that, uh, which is kind of a classic on Andromeda uh, that uh, Hodge wrote, came out in 92, so obviously a lot has changed, but I assume that there's still a, a lot of uh, star formation going on, of, of massive stars in Andromeda? Uh, yes. And not, they, in terms of star formation, things are really pretty much the same now as in 1991. <laughs> okay. um, I actually... I actually work on OB stars in the Andromeda galaxy, and almost all of them, one of the really interesting things about M31 is that almost all of the OB associations, all of the action is taking place in this ring of gas that's about five kiloparsecs out from the center of Andromeda. There's other stuff going on, but if you, if you only paid attention to what was in that ring, you would really catch like 90% of where the action is. And that's space. about uh, 17,000 light years uh, out? Yes. Okay. The OB associations were actually first cataloged by Sidney Vandenberg, um, a Canadian astronomer, in around 1963. Um, and he just, you know, drew little, drew little uh, circles around what he thought were the individual clumps of OB stars. The other big thing that M31 uh, helped us f do is to is it led to the discovery of so-called dark matter. Can you tell us about how that came about and uh, why we would be able to discover dark matter in a neighboring galaxy and not within our own? Why was it easier to do so? Well, so the so the first hint that there was such a thing as dark matter came about from an astronomer named Fritz Zwicky quite a character who was um, at Caltech in the 1940s. And he noticed that the coma cluster of galaxies, if you, if you uh, added up all the motion of the galaxies, that there was only about 1% of the mass you would need to be able to explain the fact that they were moving, that the galaxies were moving around so fast, but the galaxy, but the cluster hadn't dispersed what was holding the cluster together. And no one really paid that much attention to it. But in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Vera Rubin and Kent Ford were measuring the velocities of stars in the Andromeda galaxy. Stars, in fact, in H2 regions and gas regions, where it's very easy to get a good measurement of the velocity. And they found an absolutely astonishing thing that you would expect that as you moved further out in the galaxy, there is less and less mass um, because you would expect there to be, because you see less and less light, right? Most of the light is in the middle of the galaxy, and as you're moving further out, it gets fainter and fainter. But what they found was remarkable. What they found was that if you plotted how fast the stars were moving, as a function of radius within the galaxy, this rotation curve was almost completely flat. 
And the only way you could explain that would be if there was an increasing amount of mass as you went out in radius. And we didn't see that in the light. So where was the mass coming from? And this is where the term dark matter really came from. It was this matter that, that we could see the effect gravitationally, but we couldn't see where the light was coming from. And then they eventually expanded this work into other galaxies, and they found that dark matter was ubiquitous, that every galaxy you look at basically has this problem that some large fraction, like 80% of the mass of the universe, is unaccounted for. But then uh, Vera Rubin, the late Vera Rubin in the 1960s, and, and uh, you mentioned Kent Ford as well, um, did, uh, took rotation, what we call, what, what astronomers call rotation curves, measured rotation curves of the, of the uh, M31 of Andromeda and uh, measured the rate at which uh, the stars are orbiting the, the center of the galaxy, if I'm not incorrect. She was able to determine there was a discrepancy there that could not be explained by the, the amount of matter that uh, can be seen visual, uh, in the optical. Is that right? Yes, that's, that's exactly what I just tried to explain. That's right. Okay. That what they found was that the, this, these rotation curve in the, the Andromeda galaxy, that as you went further out from the center, that the rotation curve was flat. It stayed at a constant velocity while the light was falling off. And so if the light's falling off, you would think the mass would be falling off, but that's not what the rotation curve said. And so the rotation curves of a galaxy, I mean, that was groundbreaking work back in the 60s, was it not? I mean, can you t tell us how, how uh, Vera Rubin ended up measuring, measuring these curves? What, how do you define a rotation curve? And, and, and how, so, what, so, what, what, what goes into all that? So, um, so what, we, what we can measure easily, well, <laughs> not easily, but what we can measure straightforwardly is how fast something is moving towards us or away from us using the so-called Doppler shift. It's the same effect that when a car is moving towards you and then away from you, if it were honking its horn, you would hear a change in the frequency. Or as a train went by blaring its horn, you would see a change in the frequency. In the same way, the wavelength of light, the color of light changes depending on the speed that something is moving towards or away from you. And so these H2 regions, these gas regions that they were measuring, they have a very characteristic uh, light called H-alpha. And what they did was they measured the wavelength of the H-alpha line that they could see from these H2 regions as a function of radius in the galaxy. And to do this, because these regions are really faint, it's in another galaxy, um, they had to develop almost a new technology. They used, uh, Kent Ford um, built these image tube spectrographs. Um, the image tube magnified the amount of light tremendously, allowing it to be recorded on a photographic plate. And so they used telescopes here at Lowell Observatory for do this work and down at Kitt Peak National Observatory in Tucson on the 84-inch telescope there. And that's where these measurements were, were made. And so what they would do is they would um, expose, make long exposures with these image tube um, systems, and then they would carefully measure the exact wavelength of this H-alpha light um, 
coming from these emission regions. And that would tell them the velocity that the star or gas region was moving towards, towards us. Okay. And uh, you mentioned H2 region several times. Uh, is, this, is it a, a gas association, gas and dust association inside a galaxy? Can you explain what, uh, parenthetically sure. what, a, what an H2 sure. region is? So, so an H2 so many of your uh, listeners will be familiar with the Orion Nebula. If you go out on a good clear night and look at Orion, you'll see the belt of Orion. And you'll see the sword. And in the sword, it's a fuzzy patch. And if you looked at the fuzzy patch with the telescope, you would see that it's a gas cloud. And that sort of region is what astronomers call an H2 region because it's primarily hydrogen. And it's glowing because you've knocked off one of the electron, well, the only electron the hydrogen atom has. And the electron is then recombining with the nucleus and giving off light. And that's why they're called H2 regions. Okay, so then in late uh, 2005, the Hubble Space Telescope, not to be confused by its namesake, Edwin Hubble, <laughs> uh, right. confirmed that Andromeda not only has a double nucleus made up of uh, dense cores of stars, separated by an estimated 140 million, uh, by, an, uh, by a, a supermassive black hole, a, a 140 million uh, solar mass black hole, but within that double nucleus, there lies a tiny cluster of several hundred very hot blue stars, which you described earlier, roughly 200 million years old. And then, as reported in uh, 2005 in the Astrophysical Journal, these blue stars are estimated to be whipping around the black hole at a spectacular speed of 600 kilometers per second. So, um, is uh, is... We know that our own Milky Way has a supermassive black hole called Sag A star at its center. So, is uh, how how does the supermassive black hole at at the center of Andromeda differ from uh, Sag A star? And is it normal to have uh, these stars whipping around this black hole at the center? And uh, it, tell us a bit, also a bit about the the double nucleus because that seems to be unique. So, so this is really an interesting story. So, um, when I when I was a kid, when I was a graduate student, no one thought that galaxies had. No one talked about supermassive black holes. We all knew about normal black holes. But then people began discovering in the center of galaxies um, cusps in ro these rotation curves. We were just talking about the rotation curves. Well, it turns out when you get really close to the nucleus. Well, things are really not very well behaved. Something, there's like a very, very high mass in the center of, it turns out, the nucleus of most galaxies. So one of the first things that uh, Hubble Space Telescope took an image of was the nucleus of M31 because, it's, you know, it's a natural thing to try looking at. And they were quite surprised to find that there were two bright saucers. And these two bright saucers were separated by about five light years. Um, interestingly, the brighter one was offset from the actual center, while the fainter one was pretty much smack dab in the middle of the galaxy. So the fainter one is what contains the black hole. And as you say, it's estimated to be about 100 million times the mass of the sun. The second source is likely stars that are in a highly elliptical orbit around the central black hole. And then 
a few years after this discovery, they found this third blob, which are these blue stars that you just mentioned. And um, in terms of being unusual or not, I mean, one of the, as your listeners know, the physics prize, Nobel Prize in physics this year, went to Andrea Getz and her co-workers um, for the discovery of this intensely compact object in the center of our own Milky Way. And what uh, Dr. Gerson's work uh, did was she measured the velocity of stars near Sag A. And indeed, those are, you can not only measure their radial velocity moving towards and away from you, but you can actually, over the period of time of a few years, measure their spatial motion as well. You can actually uh, see them moving on the plane of the sky. And these two things together just made it absolutely definitive that there was this supermassive object in the, in the middle of our own galaxy. And Sag A star, the uh, supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy, is in the Sagittarius constellation. And that's, that's, uh, that Sag A star, if I'm not incorrect, uh, stems from early radio observations. Uh, that, was a ra- mm-hmm. that was a radio observational uh, uh, nomenclature. So if you wanted to look at the, at the supermassive black hole in our own galaxy, you'd step out, try to find the Sagittarius arm in the center of it? Is that where right. you would look? Right, but in fact, you wouldn't see anything. Of course, actually, was unless you were looking at the radio, and in okay. the radio, it's very interesting. And we didn't cover this at the very top, but if you were trying to find Andromeda itself, that smudge on the sky, it's only visible really in the northern hemisphere, certain, uh, basically in the winter. That's correct. Um, the prime observing time in early evening for the Andromeda galaxy is, in fact, right around now. You really need a good star chart to to find it. I look for the great square of Pegasus, and then Andromeda sort of comes off one of the stars, and you you sort of look out of the corner of your eye, and you look for this faint little smudgy patch. But it helps if you first look at the star chart and understand about where you where you should be looking. And I guess the the other thing is that um, these supermassive black holes are enabled to spin up the speeds of of stars that circled them in a way. Is that right? And then occasionally uh, they get kicked out. Uh, they they become hypervelocity stars and basically uh, get kicked out of the galaxy altogether. Or they're called yes, runaway that's stars. Exactly right. Okay. Um, in fact, we uh, our our group at Lowell recently identified a star that we think has been kicked out by the star, the central black hole in our own Milky Way galaxy. But in terms of the Andromeda galaxy, several years ago there was at least one runaway star identified in Andromeda. And I believe that you said that this was an area of your research that you had identified others since. Right. So um, what's, So we should distinguish runaway stars from these stars that are being kicked out by black holes. So massive stars are born in, in groups. And it's been known really since the early 1960s that there are maybe about 20% of the hot massive stars that we call O stars. They're moving they're not really with other groups and they're moving at a discrepant velocity. So that's kind of interesting. And we think that happens either when 
there's a binary and the companion turns into a supernova, or maybe they got kicked out um, just by a close gravitational encounter with another one of their stars. One of the interesting things we found in the Andromeda galaxy, though, is we found an evolved massive star, a red supergiant, a star like Betelgeuse that was traveling, that was way, way far away from where you should find any massive stars. And it had a very discrepant velocity. This was actually found by a summer student of mine, uh, Kate Evans, uh, an undergraduate. And um, she had shown me a plot showing the velocity of these stars as a function of position within the galaxy. There were two or three that didn't fit into this nice, uh, even pattern. And she said, well, what about these two or three? And I said, well, they're probably just bad measurements. I'd ignore them. But because she's a very good student, she didn't listen to me. And so she went and pursued it, and she found we had five or six spectra of the same star that all showed the same discrepant velocity. And so that was the first red supergiant that anyone had ever found that was actually a runaway star. And furthermore, it was the first runaway star in another galaxy like the Andromeda galaxy. Now, we know of other OB stars that are runaways in the Andromeda galaxy. And we also, recently, there's been a study of runaway stars in the Magellanic clouds. But um, finding, being able to identify evolved massive stars, evolved stars like Betelgeuse that are runaways. In fact, um, there are some people who think that Betelgeuse itself is a runaway star. It has a little bow shock around it. Now, we haven't covered the, the beautiful uh, dwarf galaxies of Andromeda. And we, we obviously know we have a couple of, we have several dwarf galaxies uh, surrounding our Milky Way. And the two most prominent, arguably, are the, the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are, if memory serves, are about 140,000 light years away, something like that. We know that uh, we can easily see there's you know prominent uh, dwarf galaxies uh, in orbit around Andromeda. Can can you talk about these and and where do you think they came from and will they eventually be cannibalized by by M31? So, so M32 and NGC 205 are very prominent um, uh, companions of the Andromeda galaxy. In fact, when I I've just done the study of red supergiants in the Andromeda galaxy. One, one of the problems we had was we had to filter out the whole area around M32 and NGC 205 because we really shouldn't be counting those stars. Um, these are just small dwarfs for roidal galaxies that are full of population two stars. You can sort of think of them as giant globular clusters. These are systems that have been become gravitationally bound to the Andromeda galaxy and they'll probably eventually be cannibalized, but not any time particularly really soon. But uh, in fact, M31, Andromeda, and, and the Milky Way seem to be ga- gravitationally bound. And by some estimates, over the next 10 billion years, will completely merge. The latest estimate I've seen of any sort of merger or any sort of collision would come in 4.5 to 5 billion years from now. So does this mean that the that if these two massive galaxies were to collide, what would happen to the two supermassive black holes at their centers? Uh, Would they also merge and coalesce? Well, I think that depends a lot on the details. So um, as, as you pointed out, so we've known for a long time 
that M31 was moving in our general direction, right? And and not only are M31 and M30 and the Milky Way gravitationally bound, but all of the galaxies within the local group are gravitationally bound. That's why we're the local group. Um, it's not going to, the local group will still be here, um, maybe in a different form uh, as galaxies, you know, collide, as you put it. But um, five billion years from now, the local group will still be the local group. They're gravitationally bound. They're not going really anywhere except around each other. Um, the Andromeda galaxy is heading in our general direction, but the big question is how much of a side motion is there, right? Slifer established that it's moving in our direction by like 80 miles per second. But if there was even the slightest amount of side motion, it would really miss the Milky Way. And so it took 10 years of observations by astronomers with a Hubble Space Telescope to try to measure how much of the left and right motion, if you will, the side-to-side -side motion the stars in the Andromeda galaxy have relative to our galaxy. And this is a really difficult measurement because on top of everything else, the Andromeda galaxy is rotating. And even though Hubble Space Telescope is a Hubble Space Telescope, we're now talking about measuring the positions of stars not to within a pixel in, in an image, but sub-sub-sub-pixel. And of course, during the same 10-year period, the cameras on uh, the Hubble Space Telescope were swapped in and out. And so you really had to do the measurement very carefully. And if the astronomers didn't make any mistakes, if everything is exactly the way we think it is, then in fact, the two galaxies will collide in, as you say, about four and a half to five billion years. Um, what that will actually mean is really not that much in the sense of you're not going to have stars bumping into each other. There's just too much space between stars. If the collision is pretty much head-on, then yes, the two massive, uh, supermassive black holes will eventually uh, come together and they will, there will be a wild, wild time by gravitational wave astronomers in some distant galaxy um, <laughs> monitoring this okay. who will have a great time with it. But um, in terms, otherwise, it's, it's kind of like if, if, you know, you annexed the next town over, it doesn't knock your house over. And so, you know, think of it more as a as sort of a annexation rather than a collision. Usually when galaxies interact like that, what it does is it triggers star formation. So you get a lot more stars forming. But continually, we, we, we see and hear stories about the fact that Andromeda and, the, and our Milky Way uh, are, are eventually going to collide. But in your own view, apparently, you seem to think that the effects of, of life here on Earth, if there is life here on Earth, and by that point, there may not be because we're going to be We'll have undergone the the red giant phase, and we'll either be, you know, set, have settled some other Earth-like planet if we exist as a species. So it's kind of a moot point, but it's it, it's interesting to think about two major galaxies colliding. But your own view is that the worst that would happen is uh, at least a more star formation. Is is that is that kind of the gist of it? Right. When when you read about the predictions, um, everybody says the same thing: stars are not going to collide because there's just too much space. And so things are just going to get a little more crowded. 
So the, the University of uh, Notre Dame reported a while back that the Hubble Space Telescope has mapped the immense envelope of gas called the halo surrounding Andromeda. And its a halo of diffuse plasma extends 1.3 million light years from the galaxy, about halfway to the Milky Way. Uh, this means that Andromeda's halo is already bumping into the halo of our own galaxy. Do we know more about this plasma invasion? Well, um, <laughs> yeah, this is this is way outside my field, and so um, I'll just say that you know, halos of galaxies, the halo extends a long way. We we know of stars that are between us and the Magellanic Clouds. And do you say that they're members of the Magellanic Clouds or do you say they're members of the Milky Way? And well, you know, it depends on where maybe the star formed. And so the, the fact that our halos are touching is, I mean, we see this, if you, if you look at galaxies and clusters, it's not unusual for their outer sections to overlap. And so... Yeah, it's you know, it happens. What uh, what do you hope to get from the from NASA's uh, James Webb Space Telescope? What do you hope that the JWST will reveal about Andromeda? Well, so um, so JWST is a really interesting telescope. As you know, it's it's like a six meter telescope. It will only be in the infrared. It has a tiny tiny field of view, much like the Hubble Space Telescope. So what I'm really looking forward to is when the um, Nancy Roman uh, Space Telescope gets launched. And that's a um, smaller telescope. It's about the same size as Hubble, two and a half meters. But it has a wide field infrared camera that will actually be able to image large sections of the Andromeda galaxy. And this will let us be able to um, really probe the... Uh, fainter red stars in the way that um, we can't really do effectively with uh, the the James Webb Telescope, JWST, um, simply because the field of view is so small with JWST. There's a lot of great questions that JWST will answer, but um, I'm not sure too many of them are going to be about the Andromeda Galaxy. I I wouldn't be surprised if they if they you know, just like with Hubble, they take uh, some images of the nucleus. Okay. And um, so what is next in your own research uh, in regards to Andromeda? Well, so I, so I, I, uh, you had, uh, of course, warned me that you were going to ask me this question. I've been thinking about that. And I have a lot of projects that, you know, to some extent... Um, it's not like I studied the Andromeda galaxy. I really study stars that are in the Andromeda galaxy. So what I learn about are the kind of stars, what happens, one of the interesting things about the Andromeda galaxy is that the metal content, the heavier element content, is heavier than, say, in the Magellanic clouds or uh, even in our own galaxy. And the kind of stars I study... Um, how they change with time, how they evolve, depend upon the metallicity. But I do actually have a project aimed at understanding the Andromeda galaxy itself. And that project is to measure the metallicity, how much heavy elements there are, in a different way than it's usually been done. Usually this has been done by studying these H2 regions. But 
depending on how you analyze the data, you always get two very different answers. And so what I'm going to try doing is doing it from um, stars and uh, observing a set of stars, I hope, with the mighty MMT telescope in southern Arizona and using these stars to allow me to measure um, the amount of heavy elements uh, as a function of location in the Andromeda galaxy. Why is it, not just you, but why is it important to a study stars in a, in a neighboring galaxy and um, why is it important to continue studying the Andromeda galaxy as a whole? Well, so we can't see. We know less about the Milky Way galaxy, our home, than we do about most galaxies. And the reason is we're stuck in, the, we're stuck in it. And so it's very difficult. We don't, know, we don't know how many stars there are in the Milky Way. To, we, that number we know much less accurately than we know the number of stars in the Andromeda galaxy, for instance, or the number of OB associations or anything else, because most of the Milky Way galaxy is obscured. And so one reason for studying the Andromeda galaxy, it's a way of learning more about what a galaxy like our own galaxy is like, our own home. Um, it's a spiral, they're very similar spiral galaxies. And so we can learn a lot about our galaxy by studying Andromeda as sort of an analog to our galaxy. It's also one of the handful of galaxies that are close enough that we can actually make out individual stars from the, from the Earth. And this is a big deal. Most galaxies are so far away that, as my roommate in college once put it, they're just fuzzy blobs. Um, but the Magellanic clouds, all the local group galaxies, and a few galaxies beyond that are close enough so that even without the Hubble Space Telescope, from a good night on the ground from a good observing site, you actually can make out the individual stars. So this now gives you the ability to um, tell a tremendous amount of information that you can only infer about more distant galaxies. And so this is how astronomers learn things. We learn about stuff that nearby, and then we apply it to things further away that are more difficult to study. So what drew you to astronomy? So when I was in fifth grade, um, a friend of mine um, showed me Saturn in his small little two-inch refractor. And I, I looked and I looked at that and I thought, well, if, if, I, could, if I can do this sort of thing for a living, uh, th this is what I want to do. And so I'm, I'm in this really privileged position of getting paid for doing what I would do for free. I get to travel to Chile and use big telescopes there to study objects that I'm fascinated by. I get to go to Hawaii and use telescopes on Mauna Kea. Um, I even got to, to fly on Sophia, this infrared telescope in the 747 last year. And I get to do all these incredibly cool things. And uh, are you humbled by the fact that you can actually do research on a, a galaxy two and a half million light years away? Um, we, we, I think we often lose sight of the, the, the fact that it's taken that long for the light to reach us. That, you know, astronomers, it's a, weird, it's a weird business because you get only a couple of nights on the telescope each year. And 
if it's cloudy, you're just out of luck. You have to reapply next year. Telescopes are, the sort of telescopes I use tend to be really oversubscribed, like 10 to 1. And so your chances of getting the observing time in the first place are only about 1 in 10. And, and so the idea that it might be cloudy and this, these photons, this light, has been traveling for two and a half million years to reach you and it got stopped by clouds before it quite got to your telescope. That's, that's, a, that's a humbling thought. So, Phil, do you have a way that listeners can contact you to, to learn more or on social media? Sure. Um, it's easy to follow me on Twitter. I'm Massive Star Guy. Or um, you can also fo- um, contact me through the Lowell Observatory webpage. That's Lowell, L-O-W-E-L-L dot E-D-U. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Philip Massey, thanks for helping us all get a better handle on our nearest Grand Spiral neighbor. Thank you, Bruce. It's been fun. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>